0: Before we start today's show, we just wanted to share some exciting news with you all. We've launched our own Patreon page. Your donations will help with costs of producing and bringing you a show with better content such as on-site visits to prisons, prison phone calls, interviews and much much more. For only $6, you get a pros and cons sticker and pin a Patreon-exclusive episode every month. This could be a Q&A, interview with a special guest, update to a previous case, and a shout-out on our social media and your name added to our website as a contributor. It also includes access to our private Slack group where you can get behind-scene updates like upcoming episodes, inmate artwork sent to Bethany, and then you can just chat with us and other listeners Head on over to www.patreon.com backslash mouth network and select the pros and cons tier to become a patron today. This week on the pros and cons, we explore a multifaceted case that looks at mental illness in the criminal justice system. We have a special guest, Kyle Hulbert, joining us to give us insight into this important issue. Please be advised that this episode contains strong language and a discussion about mental illness. This is From Prison to Promise.
1: Pros and Cons to True Crime Television Producers, Bethany Jones, which is me, and Adriana Padilla. Hello, everyone. With each and every episode, we talk to the pros that lived and worked the cases, and about the cons that made the headlines, and sometimes to the cons. We like to say that we take you behind the scenes and behind the crime scene tape. We'd like to start off by thanking our new Patreon supporters, Zoe and Yolanda, Thank you for your generous and uh, helpful contributions. and your contributions help bring us even greater quality stories, content. And you'll see that actually in part two of this case. you know, we actually used your uh, Patreon funds to like yeah, to help bring this to bring this. Yeah. And as yeah. most of you know, but if this is your first time listening, The pros and cons podcast is available on every major podcast platform and wherever you listen to podcasts. This includes TuneIn, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and other platforms. When you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other platforms, it helps others find us. And it also helps others find us when you put us in your Insta stories, I know, tag
0: us on social media.
1: Yeah, you know, tag us on the Facebook on the Twitter, it, it kind of helps, you know, we're not the biggest reviewers of, you know, our Etsy purchases. So we get it. It's like a another step that you need to do. But I don't know about you. But I review all my Etsy purchases. Oh, I am uh, shamefully behind. Um, so full disclosure, this is the second time we are recording this uh show. We had recorded this episode earlier this week, and our intention was to tell the story part of the show and then have Kyle Holbert come in for a brief interview. And this is something we've done before where we talk about the case and then we have an interview at the end. And you're absolutely right, and um, in the You know, in this instance, this interview was so much deeper. It made us really reconsider and think about mental health and the justice system, which is something that is so often overlooked. And it really deserves to be discussed. And so Kyle's interview will be its own standalone episode. This will be a two-parter. And if you just want to listen to the case, that's fine. If you just want to listen to the interview, that's fine. However, They supplement and complement each other. So we highly recommend listening to this and then that. So today's case is a case that you worked on, Bethany. It is. It is. Um, Today's case, I came across approximately a year and a half ago. And I was actually on my first vacation in years. I was in France in the village I had grown up in. And I got a call from someone developing a true crime series and at first I was like, I was annoyed, you know, I don't get a lot of time off and you don't get a lot of downtime. And I was on holiday and enjoying my time and, you know, spending time with my brother and the people in the village who who I love and appreciate and get the call and I kind of dismissed it. And a day or so later, I was like, let's do it. And I called them back when I got back to the house, and um, as soon as I got back to the U.S., I jumped into this, and I found this story and reached out to all the participants, and the rest, as they say, is history, and this is the murder of Dr. Robert Schwartz.
0: This story takes place in Leesburg, Virginia, which is a beautiful little wine country west-northwest of Washington, D.C. Dr. Robert Schwartz was a nationally renowned scientist. His specialty was biometrics and DNA research. Dr. Schwartz was even one of the founding members of the Virginia Biotechnology Association. He was extremely well-respected in his professional community, his wife had previously passed away. He was a widow. So he was raising his three children, Jesse, Michelle, and Clara, by himself. On December 10, 2001, Dr. Schwartz had an important meeting at 1 p.m. But 1 p.m. came and went, and there was no sign of him at work. This was highly, highly unusual for Dr. Schwartz. So his office called his next-door neighbor. The neighbor was more than happy to go check on Dr. Schwartz, knowing how unlike him it would be not only to miss work, but also to miss a meeting without any communication. Dr. Schwartz's home was beautiful, a really nice place, but on a remote mountain with steep, unpaved roads. As his neighbor put it, he almost needed a four-wheel drive to get there. When the neighbor arrived at the house, he found Dr. Schwartz's car in the home and the front door locked. So he looked for another way into the home. When he let himself in, he found Dr. Schwartz lying on the floor in a pool of blood. The neighbor called the Loudon police. Dr. Schwartz was dead and had very clearly died a violent death.
1: The police came to Dr. Schwartz's residence, and right off the bat, they didn't have a lot of clues or much evidence to go off of. Some furniture had been disturbed, and a struggle had taken place that seemed pretty apparent. With so few clues and evidence at the scene, the police had to look at those closest to Dr. Schwartz, and that included his three children. So, the police began by contacting Dr. Schwartz's three children. So, here you've got three young adults, or teens, you know, very young, who have lost their mother, and now they've just lost their dad in a really horrifying and horrific way. Dr. Schwartz's wife had passed away from cancer when their youngest, Clara, was just 14. So, they were all relatively young. Very, very young. You know, they were like freshmen in college or, you know, just, yeah, I mean, very early 20s and teens, so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was definitely not an easy time for them, especially having just lost their mother a few years before, and Clara, the youngest, was quiet, shy, and enjoyed the horse that her father had bought for her. However, her interests also had taken on an edgier twist in junior high and high school. She began dressing in all black, listening to Marilyn Manson, and taking an interest in fantasy role-playing games. In Clara's senior year in high school, she became friends with Catherine Inglis. And Dr. Schwartz didn't necessarily see this as a bad thing. It was, after all, getting Clara to socialize. Clara even created her own role-playing game. She was very intelligent, very creative, and uh, she created this game, The Underworld, and gave herself the title Lord Chaos. After graduating high school, Clara had been offered a position at James Madison University, a coveted spot for any high school student aspiring for higher education. And in particular, you know, for someone whose father had a PhD, I know my family has had some great academic aspirations and achievements. And when it came time for me to apply for colleges and to be accepted, it was, you know, the I don't want to say the pressure was on, but um, expectation was there. Expectations my- were high. Yeah. And so I s- assume that getting into this
0: position she was meeting her father's expectations.
1: Or I change. I assume so. I assume so. And her father who had been uh, very open-minded about Clara and her hobbies and you know she was so different from her outgoing popular brother and sister, you know, he'd been exceptionally supportive and all of that changed when Clara's grades began to slip. Clara's
0: attitude was that she just kind of wanted to be left alone, to simply spend her time playing role-playing games and recruiting new members to her circle. She didn't have any interest in her studies, which was a huge source of contention and concern. Look at the academic achievements her father had. So, the tension was brewing in the Schwartz household. In June 2001, Patrick House, a student at Clara's college, joined in one of her games. Clara and Patrick began dating. While they dated, Clara confided in Patrick that she wanted her father dead.
1: That's kind of such a strong thing to say to someone you've just started dating.
0: Yeah, throughout their relationship, Clara would talk about her desire to have her father gotten rid of. It was also throughout the summer and fall of 2001 that Clara started confiding in her high school friend, Catherine Inglis, that her father was mistreating her. Clara told her friend that her father was poisoning the meat she was eating, on occasion hitting her and pulling her underwater in their pool. Clara said the poor treatment was so severe, she wished her father was dead. Even though Clara and Patrick's relationship fizzled out in September of 2001, she continued to turn to him about stories of her father's abuse. In fact, Clara ended up at a dinner with her friend Catherine and Patrick. At this dinner, she told them she believed her father had been able to contact the cook and poison her steak.
1: Later that month, September 2001, Clara met Kyle Hulbert at a Renaissance fair. Kyle was a young man who had uh, struggled with severe mental illness, and he, in fact, had a diagnosis of a form of schizophrenia, and life also hadn't been particularly kind to Kyle. He had been a ward of the state from a very tender and young age. In fact, just a matter of a short few months, weeks, really, Kyle had been finally emancipated and no longer a ward of the state because he was now considered an adult. So Kyle had gone before a judge after spending a tremendous amount of time in the foster care system and having been hospitalized for his uh, various mental health illnesses And he goes before a judge, and they gave him a couple months of medicine and told good luck. In early of November, a few weeks after Clara and Kyle met, you know, a month or so, Kyle, Catherine, and Michael, uh, who was Catherine's boyfriend, drove to Clara to visit her at her dorm. The group spent the weekend together, even though Kyle and Clara weren't romantically involved, they had an immediate connection.
0: Clara told Kyle that she was suffering from tremendous emotional, physical, and mental abuse from her father, and told him what she had told Catherine, that he was even trying to poison her. Then, over Thanksgiving weekend, Kyle decided to stop by Claire's house. He did this in the most unusual way. He camped out in the woods by Clara's house, which in Virginia at that time would have been cold. Man, can you imagine? Then one evening, he shows up at the farmhouse to be introduced to Dr. Schwartz. And so there's a really unusual dynamic here. You've got Kyle who's suffering from these untreated mental health issues, Clara claiming she's being abused. And you have Dr. Schwartz who's trying to enjoy his Thanksgiving weekend with his family. And all of this kind of comes together. At dinner, Clara told Kyle that she might not survive another holiday. That her father was taking her to the Virgin Islands for Christmas vacation. And that her father was planning on making sure she did not come back. Right. But now, only days away from Christmas vacation... It was Dr. Schwartz that had met his untimely end. In all murder cases, the police will inevitably look at those closest to the deceased. They're going to leave no stone unturned. And Clara hadn't been particularly torn up when she learned about her father's murder. As opposed to her sister, Michelle, who had wept when learning the news, Clara
1: had simply said, how? Which for the police seemed pretty suspect. As the police are digging into the investigation, they ask the neighbors of the Schwartzes if they heard or saw anything strange the night of December 8th. And keep in mind, they were very remote, and so the neighbors were few and far between. You know, it's not like living in a metropolitan suburban area where there's, you know, 40 apartments. It's farmhouses spread out.
0: Yeah, that area is, again, it's wine country, so you've got a lot of farms and it's
1: remote. country roads. Yeah, beautiful, but um, remote. Right. And one neighbor says, in fact, yes, that night there was a knock on our door and a young man introduced himself as Kyle Holbert. And he got out of his car and um, told us that his car was stuck in the mud. The neighbors, knowing how isolated it was out there, invited Kyle in for a hot cup of tea and to use the phone to call a tow truck driver. After Kyle had made the call, he disappeared into the cold, rainy night. The police were able to track down the towed car fairly easily. When they find it at a tow lot, they're a little surprised to learn that the car is actually registered to a Mike Fole. The police begin to do their due diligence. They're digging into everyone, and they're now wondering, who is this Kyle Holbert who knocked on the neighbor's door? Who is this Mike Fole whose car was towed? And what were they doing out in remote Loudoun? The tow truck driver told the police that, interestingly, there wasn't just one person, there were three. Police realized that Mike Fole is Catherine Inglis' boyfriend. And Catherine is, of course, Clara's friend from high school. And they suspect that the third person in this car may have been Catherine. So the police locate Mike Fole and Catherine and pick them up to bring them in for questioning and begin their search for Kyle. Kyle is living at a friend's in Maryland, so bringing him in wasn't as easy. While Mike and Katie are being questioned, the police searched Mike's parents' home. They were searching the room they lived in, and the police find a samurai sword and when the police take it out of its sheath the sword is still wet
0: so police find the sword and it's as if someone has washed it trying to remove evidence Mike and Catherine cooperate fairly quickly and were able to help the police. They told police that Kyle had asked them for a ride, telling them he had a job to do. At the time, Kyle was carrying a samurai sword that he had tucked down his back beneath his coat. Knowing he had a samurai sword incredibly, Mike and Catherine still dropped Kyle off a few hundred yards from the farmhouse. After Kyle got out of the car, Mike and Catherine got stuck in the muddy rain. And it's then the police believe that Kyle attacked Dr. Schwartz. 30 minutes later, Kyle returned, noticed that Mike and Catherine were stuck, and said that he would go to the neighbors to ask for a tow. Catherine and Mike then hid the samurai sword for Kyle. Mike Full told police he didn't realize how serious his situation was. Police had quickly unraveled the investigation, and the three perpetrators had one thing in common a friendship with Clara Schwartz. So, what, if anything, did Clara have to do with this? and they
1: still hadn't apprehended the most violent of the group, Kyle. That night, the police went ahead and put in motion a felony takedown, and Kyle was taken in without further incident. When Kyle gets to the station, what he tells police is extraordinary. He tells the investigators that he did, in fact, commit the killing, but it was entirely justified, what we call in our line of work, justifiable homicide. Right, Adriana? Mm-hmm. Kyle said that Clara was being abused and mistreated and that he was simply helping her by killing her father before Dr. Schwartz was planning to murder her during the Christmas vacation. And what Kyle tells police about this cold, rainy December 8th night corroborates exactly what Mike and Katie have told the police. That night, Kyle is booked on murder charges. The next morning, Mike and Katie were arrested. Despite Kyle, and their friends having this connection to Clara, it doesn't automatically mean she has anything to do with the murder of her father or the orchestration thereof. But why hasn't Clara, with all this evidence, been arrested? The police
0: take a trip down to see Clara at her university. However, she wasn't available. In fact, police weren't able to speak with Clara until December 20th the night of her father's funeral. At the police station, Clara remains unemotional. She confesses that the night of the murder, Mike and Kyle had called her to tell her what had happened to her father. In addition to admitting that she and her father didn't have the best relationship, she said she didn't take what Mike and Kyle said seriously. She thought they were joking. Clara also shared with police about the abuse she claimed had been inflicted upon her by her father. She goes on to deny ever asking Kyle to kill her father, but does admit that Kyle had brought it up several times. Clara tells police that if she believed her father was truly a danger to her, that she would have gone to police. And she said that Kyle simply had acted on his own. Police don't have enough evidence to arrest Clara as a co-conspirator, and she's let go.
1: February 1st, 2002. Approaching two months after Dr. Schwartz's death, the police decide to pay Clara another visit at James Madison University. This time, the police brought a search warrant for her dorm room and computer. And on the computer, the police find something rather alarming. Clara had been very thorough in saving nearly all of her instant message conversations with her friends. If you guys remember like AIM, AOL Instant Messenger and the like, Clara was saving all of those. And her conversations with Kyle Hulbert put Clara right in the middle of planning the murder of her father. And Clara is arrested. The community, friends, and family were stunned. They couldn't believe that Clara had been involved. Many even went as far as to think that the police might have made a mistake how could clara have been part of the murder of her own father and clara was held without bond now when there's multiple defendants one might turn and in this case katie inglis cut a deal and she was out While Kyle and Mike were awaiting their trials in jail, October 7th, 2002, Clara Schwartz was to stand trial for the murder of her father. And at this trial, there was a huge surprise.
0: The prosecution was able to discover that Clara hadn't only shared her mistreatment, they were able to find that Clara had set her eyes on the money she could collect if her father wasn't in the picture. And at trial, it didn't take long before she was painted as a sophisticated mastermind and a gold digger. Clara had aspirations of not only getting her father's life insurance, but also selling the farmhouse and having the funds from the sale. The defense, of course, countered that Clara was simply a victim in all of this, that an unstable young man took her complaints about her father out of context and that she couldn't be held responsible for his actions. However, the surprises don't stop there. A star witness was called to the stand. It's Patrick, Clara's boyfriend, whom she had broken up with shortly before meeting Kyle. Patrick told the court how he and Clara had met and how their relationship had blossomed with the shared interest in goth culture. He also shared the reason their relationship ended. Clara had begun to ask him to kill her father. Patrick had thought she was kidding at first. However, she gave him a book of poison. The very way she said her father had been meddling with her she was now trying to reciprocate and have her father killed. The second Kyle came into the picture, Patrick and Clara split. Apparently, she didn't need him anymore. Kyle Hulbert did take to stand, but pled the fifth. Pleading the fifth is the American legal term that means you don't have to testify if it incriminates you. Likely, you've heard it in various TV shows and films over the years. I'll take the fifth. Mike Fole didn't take the stand either. However, due to her plea agreement, Catherine Inglis, Clara's longtime high school friend, does take the stand. And Catherine reveals something even more stunning. The weird, unorthodox Thanksgiving visit by Kyle. Kyle claimed it was reconnaissance. He was getting an understanding of the lay of the land. And Catherine revealed that Claire had written Kyle a check to cover his expenses prior to him taking the trip out to the farmhouse that Thanksgiving. To address the abuse rumors, Claire's own sister Michelle took to the stand and testified that she had never seen her father mistreat her
1: sister. There was one last twist in this already incredible case. photos of a very young girl have been found on Dr. Schwartz's computer. The young girl in the photos had pigtails like Clara and struck a striking resemblance. Would the disturbing pictures substantiate Clara's claims of abuse? It was discovered that these alarming photos that they were like nude photos of a young girl, you know. Um Obviously, not of the age of consent, and the these particular photos, it was discovered, were actually downloaded or placed upon Dr. Schwartz's computer just a week or so before the murder, and Dr. Schwartz's computer had not been password protected, meaning that anyone who had access to his computer could have put the photos on them. The prosecution asserts that these ingredients add up to one thing and one thing only, that Clara Schwartz was the architect of her father, Dr. Schwartz's murder. Clara was sentenced to 48 years in prison. Found guilty on the charges of murder and two counts, of solicitation of murder because she had, you know, Patrick House, Kyle Holbert. And Kyle was found guilty and he was sentenced to life without parole. So in part two of this
0: series, we are going to have an exclusive interview with Kyle, now knowing the facts of the case. Um, We are going to talk to him about um what happened so um if you
1: want to know more please click on the next episode thank you everyone and please be sure to check out our part two of this important episode not only a show that we have previously produced but a show we're bringing you exclusive insight to yeah thank you guys thanks Before we sign off, I just wanted to tell you about a new podcast I'm executive producing called The Intersection of Cancer and Life. It is hosted by my dear friend, Emily Garnett, who was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in November 2017. Emily and her guests discuss the changes, challenges, and unexpected shifts that have occurred while living with cancer. These conversations emphasize the fact that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to rebuilding a life after diagnosis, and lets listeners know that they are not alone, whether they themselves have been diagnosed with cancer or have a friend or loved one navigating treatment. You can listen to the first season now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app by searching for The Intersection of Cancer and Life.